We're on chapter 38, and we're beginning a new topic. And that topic is in direct contrast with what we've been discussing until now. If you were to sum up the main point of 35, 36, 37, the last three chapters, how would you sum up the main point? In fact, if I would only give you one word to sum up 35, 36, 37, how would you sum up those chapters? Action. I agree. I agree. Action. Absolutely. And we explained why action is so important. And there's a reason why we've talked about how important action is, because we were comforting the Benini, whose main focus is behavioral. But, as you know, nothing is black and white. There are two sides of every issue. And although it is, as, it is extremely important to emphasize the primacy of action, we should not forget, we should not go so far in the, the, toward that extreme that we forget that there is something else as well that counterbalances, so to speak, action. It's not just action. It's not just doing the right thing. There's also something called kavona, intention. Chapters 38, 39, and 40 are going to talk about the importance of intention. Before we get into that, let me do what the Alter Rebbe does and reaffirm the importance of action. It's interesting, at the beginning of chapter 38, there's not a clean break between these two sections of chapters. At the beginning of chapter 38, the Alter Rebbe reiterates the importance of action and says, even in verbal mitzvahs like prayer or saying the Shema, or making blessings. It is incredibly important that we verbally articulate. We touched upon it briefly last week. It is incredibly important that we verbally articulate it, that there's actually the, the physical uh, action of speech, meaning the actual use of the, the, uh, the organs of speech, so that even verbal mitzvahs have some grounding in physicality. And that's why somebody who meditates and thinks the prayers or the blessings or the Shema is not exempt from the obligation of those mitzvahs until he actually articulates it with the organs of speech. So we reiterate at the beginning of chapter 38 how important it is that every mitzvah has to have that physical component. And in fact, he says that without the physical component, there is no mitzvah. And yet, what we're about to do is talk about the fact 
as the Alter Rebbe says at the beginning of chapter 38, a mitzvah without kavana, without intention, is like a body without a soul. The mitzvah is the body, the kavana is the soul. Let me risk going backward a little bit and, get in, and, and give you a metaphor that brings out the difference between this body and this soul. Imagine there's a guy who is a connoisseur of coffee. Doesn't just drink whatever instant or whatever K-cup is available. He knows his coffee. Does the, you know, he grinds the beans himself and he does the, what's it called, the French press. And he comes down one morning and there's no coffee. He just can't get his day started without a good cup of coffee. And he sits there lamenting the fact that there is no coffee. And his wife notices, and she says, what's wrong, dear? And he says, there's no coffee. And she says, oh, no, I know how important it is to start the day with a good cup of coffee. And she commiserates with him, because she, too, is somewhat a connoisseur of coffee. And in fact, they reminisce about various cups of coffee that they have shared. <laughs> Maybe it was that little cafe in Paris where they tried that special gourmet kosher. kosher, of course it was kosher yeah. that special gourmet uh, coffee and they're talking about the coffee and they're connecting on an emotional level meanwhile their teenage daughter overhears this discussion now she doesn't like coffee she doesn't even understand her parents feelings for coffee. But she hears there's a problem. She walks down the block, she goes to the corner store, she gets a bag of coffee beans, she comes home, she grinds them up, she brews a cup of coffee or a pot of coffee, she puts it down on the table for her mother and father, here's your coffee. Okay. So let me ask you a question. In this little scenario, who's the tzaddik and who's the bainini? Let's pretend, yeah, let's pretend that the, this man's desire for the cup of coffee is like Hashem's desire for the mitzvah. And that the wife and the daughter are two different ways of responding to that desire for the mitzvah. Which one of them is like the tzaddik and which one is like the bainini? Okay, so let's, let me back it up. Let's go back to chapters 12, 13, 14. Where is the bainini connected 
Where, in what area is the Benni capable of connecting uh, at will with Hashem every time? In action. In what area does only the tzaddik have the ability to connect at will with Hashem? Emotion. So in this little scenario, who's connecting emotionally and who's connecting behaviorally? The daughter is incapable of connecting emotionally. She doesn't understand. She doesn't get it. What's the big deal about the cup of coffee? But she recognizes that her father wants the cup of coffee, so she gets it because that's his will, not that she shares that will. That's like a Benini who says, look, Hashem wants it, I get it. That must be important. Not that I share the desire. I can't fake it. I can't pretend that I like everything that he likes and I dislike everything that he dislikes. But I can acknowledge that he's made it pretty clear to us 365 things he dislikes and 248 things that he does like and I'm going to make sure to get those done. The wife, on the other hand, actually shares the feelings, the desire of the husband. That's like the tzaddik who actually has the desire for the mitzvah and actually is revolted by the opposite of a mitzvah. Now, of course, the analogy is a little bit inconsistent with the reality because in order for it to be, in order for the wife here to be a tzaddik, she would at some point have to stop commiserating with the husband about coffee and get up and make the coffee, right? Okay. Um, so a tzaddik also has behavior. A tzaddik also fulfills Hashem's will. But the point is that until the tzaddik fulfills Hashem's will, until the point comes where the tzaddik actually just does the action, All of that emotion, all of that um, understanding doesn't really bring the deepest gratification to Hashem. The deepest gratification that can be brought to Hashem is through action, not through understanding and through emotion. Yeah? Yeah? The, the idea that there's inherent value to overcoming the struggle? Yeah. Well, that's a theme that we've touched upon throughout Tanya, and it definitely goes along with this. That, I mean, in my metaphor, why do you think I picked the teenage daughter as my uh, character? Because teenage daughters are inherently, I would say, like... When do they roll their eyes? When do they not roll their eyes? Like, they're like default setting is sort of like whatever, right? Like exasperation. Their default setting is, is, is exasperation. So think about a Jew who every mitzvah he hears about is like, another one of these weird things that I'm required to do? Okay, whatever. And then he goes and he does it. There's value to that. There's value to that. 
And if the tzaddik were to only relate on an emotional level, just sit there commiserating with, you know, the wife sits there, commiserates with the husband at length about the, his desire for coffee, but not actually get the coffee, then at the end of the day, who's actually connected on a deeper level? The wife or the daughter? Clearly the daughter. So, obviously the tzaddik in the end executes God's will. Because a tzaddik is not just emotionally perfect, but also behaviorally perfect. But the point is, until the tzaddik executes the behavior, then really there's no advantage that the tzaddik has in being so sensitive that the, that the bainini is losing out on by not having that sensitivity. So I'm just reiterating the incredible importance of action. Action, action, action. However, here comes the however. One can go so far in that extreme that one begins to overlook another necessary component of the service of Hashem. Let me share with you that the chapters that we're about to study, 38, 39, and 40, to me are from the are among the most technically complicated chapters and also from among the most abstract chapters because it talks a lot about different levels of worlds um, and the the height to which the mitzvah is able to climb in in the worlds and I always sort of grappled with how to understand these chapters in the context of a book which is very practical, which is a manual for living. And I finally came across an explanation, not in Tanya itself, but in a, in a talk of the Rebbe, which was published on Parshas Kairach, where the Rebbe explains why Kairach came along when he did. Why did Kairach object? Historically, why did he make his objection at the time that he did? If he was upset about Aaron being installed as the high priest, that happened a year after they left Mitzrayim. That happened on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, when the Mishkan, when the sanctuary was assembled. Why didn't he come along until many months later, after the Meraglim returned? And if you remember, the Meraglim returned, the spies returned to give ill report on the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, which is why Tisha B'Av became instituted as a day of mourning. And Kairach Shlach, Parsha Shlach is, is the spies, and Parsha Kairach is Kairach, and that's the week after Shlach. Why did Kairach, and although nothing is necessarily chronological in the Torah, it does happen to be that Kairach came along after the spies. So the question is, Kairach's objection 
really was to something that took place long before the spies. Why did he wait to, to rear his head until he did? And, and, and the Rebbe explains like this. What was the sin of the spies? The spies misunderstood the importance of physical action. They wanted to remain in the wilderness, eating bread from heaven, drinking water from the well of Miriam, and studying Torah. Now the fact that the mitzvahs are actions, and that many of those actions cannot even be performed without settling the land, where the temple would be built, and the Jews would be occupied in, in agriculture, notwithstanding the fact that the mitzvahs really require settling into the land, the spies were afraid of that. They said that the land devours its inhabitants. What they meant is that a connection with physicality will destroy us. So it's better that we keep our Judaism pristine and theoretical and totally spiritual and not risk jeopardizing it by trying to apply it to everyday life. By the way, the Alter Rebbe points out something interesting. The verse that describes the spies says, Kulam Anoshim, they were all men. Which Rashi makes a comment about that. Well, what else were they other than men? But the Alter Rebbe says, what the verse is telling us is, they were such men. See, men have a, an affinity for abstraction, for the theoretical. And they find spiritual fulfillment in that which is otherworldly. Which is why a bacher in yeshiva is totally oblivious to the world. Whereas women, if we can overgeneralize, femininity, the spiritual uh, energy of femininity, which parallels Hashem's feminine aspect, which is the Shekhinah, the indwelling presence, the godliness, which is imminent within creation. Femininity recognizes the opportunities to bond with God in day-to-day -day life. In the, so to speak, the humdrum of pedestrian, mundane activities. So these spies, they wanted to sit and meditate and appreciate the, the spirituality of, of, of Judaism, but they were terrified of applying it to real life. And that's why they came back and they said, we can't do it, it can't be done. This, 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 this Torah that we were given is not compatible with real life. So let's choose one or the other. Let's choose to preserve the Torah and not have a real life. And they were sorely mistaken, and their error was pointed out for all to see. That Judaism 
must be applied to everyday life. And the destiny of the Jewish people is to enter the land and to build a temple and to be involved in agriculture and in commerce and in city building and to apply God's will in all of those details. And that's when Kairach was emboldened. What's the connection? Until the spies came along, Kairach thought like this. I'm well aware of the fact that Moshe and Aaron are on a different level. They are simply on a different level than all of us as far as their cognition and their emotion. They understand more about godliness than the rest of us and they feel more for godliness than the rest of us. Kodach acknowledged that. They're like the wife who actually commiserates with the husband about the coffee and he knew that he and others couldn't do that or couldn't do it to the extent that Moshe and Aaron were able to. And so he accepted the fact that they were in a unique position. However, when the spies came back and they tried to advance the idea that Judaism could be purely intellectual and emotional without being behavioral, and they were refuted in the most forceful of ways, Kairach had an aha moment. He said, ah, I get it. It's not about understanding. It's not about emotion. It's about action. It's about action. And when it comes to action, we are all the same. Of course, Moshe Rabbeinu understands more and feels more than I do when he puts on tefillin, than when I put on tefillin. But we were just told clearly that Judaism is not about what you understand and what you feel, it's about what you do. And when it comes to what you do, Moshe puts on tefillin and I put on tefillin, and so does every other Jew. There's a certain democracy or universalism when it comes to action. So Kodach was then emboldened to lead this rebellion against those who enjoy a unique position based on their heightened level of godly sensitivity. He said, I'm not disputing that you're more sensitive to God than I am, but we were just taught that Judaism is not about that sensitivity, it's about the action, and we all do the same actions. That's why he didn't come along until after the spies. Now let me ask you, how was he wrong? How was he wrong? Judaism's not about action? It's not only about action. It's primarily about action. But you can't discount the value of kavana, of intention. You can't discount it. So the spies went to one extreme, but Kairach went to the opposite extreme. So you can't have action 
without kavana. Fine. But explain to me now, where is the place for kavana? After you've done such a terrific job in chapters 35, 36, 37, of explaining to me how important it is, not just important, how essential it is to bond with Hashem and to fulfill His will exclusively through physical action. How are you going to come now and tell me, yes, but it's also about intention. So this is the part of the puzzle that is very important to understand. This is not a yes, but. This is not a, on the other hand. It's not a reversal in any way whatsoever. It is actually a continuation of the trajectory that we started on in chapter 35 when we began to comfort the Bain. In chapter 35, we began to comfort the Bain by telling him, listen, bottom line, serving Hashem is not a self-help program. This is not about your spiritual attainment. Serving Hashem is about exactly what it sounds like, serving Hashem, giving Hashem what Hashem wants. What does Hashem want? What does He want more than anything? What is His desire? Dwelling place in this physical world. That's what He wants. Okay, fine. And how is that granted? What, do, what needs to be done in order for that to happen? Through our actions. So, we just explained in 35, 36, 37, that really, I asked you, remember I asked you at the beginning of the class, how would you sum it in one word, 35, 36, 37, and the word was action, and I agreed, yeah, it's about action. But now let me ask you to back that up. Why? Why action? It's not arbitrary, there's a reason for it. Why is action so important? Say louder. Because what the Rambam explained that after the last day, after the last day, you break the heart. Before you get to the after, talk just about the action. Why is action important? What does it do? Why is it important? It brings down Hashem. It makes the world more. No, it makes the world more inhabitable. It makes the world more inhabitable for Hashem. The real reason why action is important has nothing to do with you. You're not important in this. You're a chariot. Remember, you're a chariot. You're a conduit. It's very hard for us to shake loose the notion that somehow spirituality won't improve our lives. Because obviously it does, but that is not meant to be our motivation. Our motivation has to be, what does Hashem want? What does Hashem want? He wants a dwelling place in this world. Why does He want it? I don't know. He wants it. We, dis we discussed that previously. A desire is above <coughs> rationality. But that's what He wants. <coughs> now, how does it happen? It, through, it happens through our action. 
So bottom line, why is action so important? Because it gives Hashem what He wants. And what does He want? He wants to be here at home in this world. Period. Okay. Now let me ask you. 38, 39, and 40. We're going to discuss the importance of kavana. That the action needs to have intent. Why is kavana important? Oh, so that's interesting what you're saying right now. Okay, so that if you don't have kavana, eventually you'll lose the motivation and then you won't even have the action. Okay, I'm glad you said that because that is not the problem that we're dealing with here, but it is good that you brought it up. In the, in the end of, so do you remember in chapter four when we spoke about the garments? And when we first introduced the garments, at the beginning of chapter four, Chapter 3, we spoke about the koiches and the insides, cognition and emotion. And then chapter 4, we spoke about thought, speech, and action, the, the outsides. And at the beginning of chapter 4, we spoke about which soul faculties plug into which soul garments. And we said that with, we said the emotions plug into the mitzvahs because without love and awe of God there will be no continu continuation of the performance of mitzvahs so back in chapter 4 we spoke about the importance of emotion as the motivators the engine that keep us doing the mitzvahs okay that was then, this is now now we're dealing with a different issue now we're dealing with, let's say I'm doing the mitzvahs. Let's even say I have enough emotion to continue doing the mitzvahs. And nevertheless, is there value to emotion beyond just it keeping me engaged in doing the mitzvah? You understand that before we were talking about emotion doesn't have inherent value it has a relative value in as much as it keeps us doing the mitzvahs. But here we're talking about do, do, do emotions have some inherent value? And we're saying they do. The emotions do have inherent value. But what inherent value do emotions have? So let me, let me keep, keep us focused here. Emotions are important. They are important. Inherently important. Not just to keep us doing the mitzvahs, but even if you're already doing the mitzvah. <coughs> the value of a mitzvah done without emotion is not the same as the value of a mitzvah that's done with emotion. So the emotion has inherent value. Let me repeat that to make sure it's clear. Let's say there are two cases, in, and in both cases you are doing the mitzvah and you are continuing to do the mitzvah. Nevertheless, the mitzvah that's done with emotion has greater value than the mitzvah that's done without emotion. And my question is, what is that value? 
and I want to help hint to you, you know, hint to you the, 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 the right answer, which is this. We are not reversing. We are not playing the other side of the argument. We are continuing on the trajectory that we started in chapter 35. In chapter 35, we established why are mitzvahs important? Why is action important? Help me out here. Why is action important? It fulfills Hashem's desire for what? A dwelling place in this world. Fine. Emotions are also important. Why are emotions important? Determines the world that it goes to. For the same reason that actions are important. <coughs> the same level? Well, well, done with the right Actions give Hashem a dwelling place in this world. The emotions behind those actions enhance the degree to which Hashem has a home in this world. Emotion is important for the exact same reason that action is important. Action gives Hashem a dwelling place in this world. The emotions behind the actions enhance the degree to which that home, to which this world is a home for Hashem. What do I mean by that? And this is what I discovered when learning this talk of the Rebbe about Kairach. When the Rebbe is describing Kairach's error, he says like this, of course, Kairach is right that the main thing is action. And what does it mean the main thing is action? What's the criterion for the main thing? Well, it's effectiveness in giving Hashem what he wants. The main mechanism in giving Hashem his dwelling place in this world is action. So, of course, Kairach was right that the main way of giving Hashem a dwelling place in this world is through action. However, he did not understand that you can give Hashem a dwelling place in this world but that there are degrees. There's a spectrum, there's a continuum. Like we say, as good is good is besser nicht besser. In theory, there could be a dwelling place for Hashem in this world. The Rebbe says, it would be a home, but it would be a dark home. You would construct the edifice, but you would not turn on the lights. So Hashem would have a place in this world, but the degree to which that is revealed would be diminished. Are you saying, though, that the emotions motivate you to do the mitzvahs? No, I'm not. No, wait, wait. That's what you, I thought you said. Is there no, right to love we're not love? talking about the emotions no, no, as motivators to do I'm mitzvahs. Not. You said before, though, is there a value to love and all besides it keeping me doing the mitzvahs? So first emotions motivate you, then you do That's the action. And then it increases your Yes. Connection. Now we're talking about two different roles that emotion right, plays. Right. One role is the motivator to get you to do it. Okay, fine, we understand that. And we spent chapters discussing how to muster up that emotional motivation. We meditate to create emotion. We arouse the inner capacity for self-sacrifice in order to bring up emotion. But here we're talking about you're already doing it. What value does emotion have? It enhances the effect of the mitzvah. I want to repeat that. 
What does emotion do? It enhances the effect of the mitzvah. Now I want to ask you, what's the effect of a mitzvah? Make a dwelling place for Hashem. So if I say that emotion enhances the effect of the mitzvah, what does that mean? Say it back to me. The emotion makes the mitzvah create more of a dwelling place for Hashem. What means more of a dwelling place? Qualitatively, a brighter dwelling place, so to speak. So when this world is a dwelling place for Hashem, it means that Hashem is revealed in this world, but there are degrees to which He is revealed. But doesn't it mean that we're enhancing our relationship with Hashem? Hashem wants a partner in the world. Hashem doesn't want to dwell here alone. But that's not the reason why we're doing it. Our entire relationship with Him is that we give Him His home. That is the relationship. Our entire relationship with him is that we give him a home. So they're one and the same thing. Even when the Jews built the Mishkan, doesn't it say that you're building a dwelling place for Hashem, the Mishkan, for Hashem to dwell here, but then it says we shall come to the Tolkham, so that he dwelt within us? Isn't it a lot about making ourselves? Okay, so let me let me address this point. And by the way, I haven't even begun to get into the actual text of 38, 39, and 40. But I think with the way we set it up, it'll go smoothly. Let me address this because I just think it's so um, unique to the approach of Tanya, and it just bears repeating. This is not a self-help program. This is not about achieving higher spiritual levels. This is about giving Hashem what He wants. It happens to be that He wants us to attain higher spiritual levels. But that only has value because He values it. So even when we speak about giving Hashem a dwelling place in the world, and that means within my life, and turning my life into a conduit for the expression of Hashem's will, that's not because I'm seeking to improve my life. Obviously, it improves my life. But that's not my concern. I'm seeking to give Hashem his deepest desire, which happens to be, for whatever reason, a dwelling place in this world. So I have one objective in mind. To give, to gratify Hashem's deepest desire, which is to be at home, to be expressed, to be revealed within this world. What was the source for that? This is a medrash from Tanchuma, Pashas Nasei, that Hashem created the world because he had a taiva, nisave, he, he, he lost it, actually would be the correct translation, to have a dwelling place in the lowest realm. And we discussed in previous lessons that there are various different answers to the question of why Hashem created, but this is the only answer that actually addresses why Hashem made a physical world. 
at any rate. So you're saying that should be our ultimate? Not our ultimate, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Okay, so but when she says, God says, you know, give me a, bedroom place, a dwelling place and I will dwell within you, yeah. and, and it does have that spiritual motivation, that's okay, but it's not the ultimate reason that God created the world, it's a byproduct or something. It is a byproduct, that's right. That's right. Okay. From which we benefit, yes, but that's not our motivation. Okay. So let's reiterate here. We started talking about in chapter 35 that the ultimate purpose of everything is to give Hashem his desire, and that is done through action. But you should know it's not only done through action. You can give Hashem a dwelling place in this world through action, but you can enhance that dwelling place in the world by infusing that action with emotion. That's why, incidentally, we say in chapter 38 that action and kavana are like body and soul. You need both. You can't have a soul without a body. That's like the spies. But you can't have a body without a soul. That's like Kairach. Yeah? Yeah. This is not a motion that leads to action. I'm saying, let's see if there's a lot of kavana and action that's not kosher, but they're very godly. What we're describing here is not a motion that leads to action. What we're describing here is you are already doing it. Now, what are your feelings about the fact that you're doing it? That, that's that's not what we're talking about. That no. That's what you're describing. Somebody who has a lot of a lot of feeling, but they're not actually adhering to the mitzvahs or the. I, I I understand what you're alluding to. You're talking about people who are spiritual but not religious. Or taking liberties with the technical uh, parameters of, of the of how the mitzvahs are supposed to be done according to halacha. Yes. Okay. So understand that that is not kavana. It's not. No, it's not. That feeling isn't kavana. Kavana is when you're already doing the mitzvah the way Hashem wants it done. Now. How much, forgive the uh, very uh, ambiguous word here, but how much oomph do you put into it? So let's put it like this. You go out to dinner with your whole family. Party of 20. You know, one of those things. Give us the whole party room. And you have a waiter. And this waiter is so charming and so personable. He should be a game show host. He knows everybody's names. You're shocked. He know, he figured out everyone's names. And he's schmoozing with Aunt Gladys. And he's so charismatic. And then he messes up all the orders. 
and you don't get what you asked for. So how do you feel about that? The feeling is, listen, I appreciate the bedside manner, but you're a waiter. Bottom line, get my order right. I'm not looking for friends. I'm looking for someone to do their job. So if, let's, get, let's, 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 let's look at a second scenario. We have a waiter who's robotic almost, who is totally focused on just getting your order. And he is expressionless and emotionless, but technically absolutely proficient. That is far more desirable than the guy who, uh, you know, I'm really not a waiter, I'm really uh, an actor. Right? Okay, that's beautiful, but I buy tickets to see you perform on Broadway. I, I'm paying money to have you serve me food. On the other hand, some people, some people would be happier with the atmosphere and eat the little food. That's true, but not if it's about the food, so not if it's about the dwelling place. If, if, I, if, I, if I'm going to a restaurant, it's pretty clear what my intentions are. If I want to go to a show, I'll buy tickets to a show. I went to a restaurant, I want to be served. Okay. Now, let me introduce a third scenario. And that is that the waiter is technically proficient and to the extent that he's capable, he infuses some degree of personality. In other words, there's service and there's service with a smile. That's a big tip. <laughs> That's right. But more than the fact they'll get a big tip. It's not about the tip. It's about it enhances the experience. So the bottom line is I want technical proficiency. Give me the action that I desire. Don't give me feeling without action. That's value, valueless. However, if you're giving me the action, and then you infuse it with emotion, that actually enhances the impact of the action. So if I have to choose between service and a smile, I want service. But if I can have service with a smile, then obviously service with a smile enhances the impact of that service. So let's say it like this. Why is action so important? Because that's what Hashem wants. That's called service. Why is emotion important? Because that's service with a smile. It enhances the effect of that service. What's the effect of the service? It gives Hashem a dwelling place in this world. What does it mean to enhance that effect? It means Hashem feels even more at home in this world. Which, bottom line, means a greater revelation of godliness in the world. But now, let me try to do, in the next five minutes, three chapters. <laughs> but that's not just Hedr Mitzvah. That's not just Hedr Mitzvah. No, 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 we're not talking about Hedr Mitzvah. We're not talking about doing the Mitzvah in a more special way. That's where you're actually doing it more. Here we're talking about feeling it more. Okay, chapter 38. We say like this. A mitzvah without kavana is like a body without a soul. And we say that there are two levels 
of mitzvah action and two levels of mitzvah emotion, which correspond to the four letters of the ineffable name, Yud and He and Vav and He, which correspond to four <coughs> kingdoms. The human, the animal, the vegetable, and the inanimate. So, let's start from below to above. The lower two are two types of action, and the higher two are two, two types of feeling. In action, the lowest type of action, which corresponds to inanimate matter, like a stone, is a physical mitzvah, an action mitzvah. The higher level of mitzvah is a verbal mitzvah, like prayer, or a blessing, or the Shema, and that corresponds to the vegetable kingdom. Then, in intention, there are two levels. The lower level is emotion that comes naturally or instinctively. That corresponds to an animal, because an animal's emotions are all hardwired. And the higher level of kavana or emotion corresponds to humanity, and that is intellectually generated emotion. So the highest level of emotion, if you want to muster the highest level of emotion to enhance your mitzvah, it is through meditating and thinking like a human being and creating emotion as the conclusion of your meditation. However, if you cannot do that, then it is sufficient to simply arouse latent emotions that you have for Hashem and use that to enhance the performance of the mitzvah. And this should be familiar to you from chapter 16 and 17, which spoke about emotional emotions that are generated through meditation, and then chapters 18 through 25, which spoke about emotions that are generated through arousing latent feelings. Okay. In chapter 39, we point out the fact that angels are called chayois. You know what chayois mean? Means chayois, like a gan chayot? Animals. Why are angels called animals? Because they are instinctive. Their love and awe of Hashem is instinctive. That's why, generally speaking, angels belong to the world of Bria, I mean, uh, of Yetzirah, because Yetzirah is chiefly an emotional realm. Bria is chiefly an intellectual realm where the most prominent spheroids of that system of reality are Chochmah bin Adas. But Yetzirah is an emotional realm where the most prominent spheroids are the Midois, Chesed, Gvurit, Feres, Netzach, Yisoid. So most angels belong to that realm. And the truth is, most souls also belong to that realm. Because in order to, in order to do a mitzvah whose emotion is, is generated through intellect it requires a, a, a lofty soul. And not everyone is capable of doing it. There's, a, there's another point here as well. 
when you do the mitzvah, okay, let, let, let me introduce chapter 40. Chapter 40 says that the relationship between the mitzvahs and the kavana, remember chapter 38, we said mitzvahs and kavana is like body and soul. Chapter 40 introduces a different metaphor. The relationship between mitzvahs and kavana is like the bird and the bird's wings. Technically, a bird is kosher even if it doesn't have wings. That's not considered a terminal injury. An animal that's terminally injured is no longer kosher. But the wings are not essential, they're not vital to the bird. So you can have a kosher bird that has no wings. You can have a mitzvah that has no kavana. And it's still a mitzvah. But without wings, it doesn't fly, it doesn't soar. What does it mean for a mitzvah to soar? What it means for a mitzvah to soar is which world does the mitzvah's energy climb to? A mitzvah that's done with no intent whatsoever or for an ulterior motive, the mitzvah is still a mitzvah, but its spiritual impact remains here in this world. It doesn't ascend. A mitzvah that's done with emotion, but that emotion was mustered through animalistic means, namely through arousing emotions that already exist, that are latent within the soul. Then the impact of that mitzvah ascends to Yitzira. And a mitzvah that's done with an emotion that was generated through meditation, then the impact of that mitzvah ascends to Bria. Now, I told you these chapters are very technical and very Kabbalistic. So let me ask you a question. What does it mean and why does it matter what world the mitzvah ascends to? And I'm going to answer the question very simply. Right now, it doesn't actually matter to you. But in the future, when there will be a dwelling place in this world, then the degree to which godliness is revealed in this world then is directly proportionate to the height to which our mitzvahs were able to are able to climb now. The degree to which godliness will be revealed in this world when Mashiach comes is directly proportionate to the height to which our mitzvahs ascend now. So what difference does it make whether I push my mitzvah up to Bria instead of just pushing it up to Yitzhira. The difference is in the quality of the dwelling place that will occur. I can create a dwelling place for Hashem in this world purely with mitzvahs and no kavana. But it'll be a dark dwelling place. The degree to which there is light in that dwelling place depends on with which I did the mitzvahs, which, at, which we describe as the height or the, 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 uh, the station or the world to which your mitzvah ascends when you perform that mitzvah. Do we benefit of the brighter? Of course we benefit. We live in that dwelling place. So it's selfishly motivated in the end anyway. <laughs> Why does it always have to come back to selfish motivation? <laughs> Just me. I don't know if anyone else. Practically speaking, is it possible to give an example of a how 
pra practically speaking, I mean, I, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we're over time, and I try to be extremely sensitive about that. Um, I'm not sure what you're asking as far as a practical example, but let me just say like this. You're doing the mitzvah anyway. And even if you do it completely by rote, it is having a transformative effect on the world and it's helping bring Mashiach. Okay? So far, so good. However, if you do it with feeling, then the dwelling place for God that will come about when Mashiach comes will be bright. If you do it with an even greater degree of feeling, what means greater degree of feeling? What are the levels within feeling? Instinctively generated or, or intellectually generated. So if you do it with a higher degree of feeling, then it'll create an even greater revelation, a greater brightness when Mashiach comes. So again, let me re repeat. Action is important and kavana is important. But it's not a yes, but, it's not a reversal, it's not a backpedaling on our position. It is the same trajectory that we started in chapter 35. Action is important because it gives Hashem a dwelling place in this world. Emotion is important because when the emotion is infused into the action, when there's service with a smile, it enhances and intensifies the impact of that mitzvah, which is the dwelling place it creates for Hashem, and makes that dwelling place even brighter. At this time, we describe that, that qualitative superiority, as what world does my mitzvah ascend to? But ultimately, we will cash that in, and that will be converted into the intensity to which Hashem is revealed in this world. And that is 38, 39, and 40. And I have to have Rahmanis and uh, I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll start with chapter 41 next week.